This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Preborn. For $140, you can provide ultrasounds to five women in crisis pregnancies. Call now, 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229 or JanetMefford.com. This is Janet Mefford Today. Our confidence is in Christ alone. Are we going to stand with God come what may? If the Word of God says it, I believe it! And that's the way it is. And now, here is Janet Mefford. Welcome, everybody. It is the supreme irony that some of the same progressive elites who wanted to remove the now acquitted President Trump from office, in part for his alleged abuse of power, are themselves the ones who are abusing power and in a massive way. Joe Biden, for example, claimed a few days ago that his son Hunter was asked to be a board member of the Ukrainian energy company Burisma because he is a very bright guy, even though Hunter had no experience in the energy sector. What is the truth, though, about how these elites are abusing their power for personal Gain because it certainly goes beyond Joe Biden. Joining me now is Peter Schweitzer, president of the Government Accountability Institute and the former William J. Casey fellow at the Hoover Institution at Stanford. He's also the New York Times bestselling author of Clinton Cash, and he's out with a great new book that we're going to be discussing called Profiles and Corruption, Abuse of Power by America's Progressive Elites. Peter, it's so great to have you with us. How are you? I'm great, Janet. Thanks so much for having me. Oh, it's great to talk to you. Well, you focus in this book on this problem of power inequality. How bad would you say the power inequality is among some of these top Democrats? Well, I think it's huge. Uh, You know, we we, we hear about income inequality all the time, but power inequality uh, is really talking about the fact that if you're a public official, you can get away with things that people in the private sector, even wealthy people in the private sector, could not do. Um, the sort of, uh, uh, you know, ethical or legal constraints uh, on uh, nepotism or corruption or self-dealing that applies to corporate executives doesn't apply to politicians. So you have a guy like Joe Biden. I have a chapter in the book. It's 70 pages long. You look at the five members of his family who cashed in while he was vice president. These were with massive government contracts. These were with lucrative deals with foreign governments. If this were a corporate executive, not only would they be fired, they would probably be under investigation by the SEC for a whole host of violations. Yeah. But because he's vice president of the United States and because he's got the right political views in the eyes of many in the media, he basically gets away with it. Well, right. And as you point out, in focusing on progressive elites in particular doing this, the reason you're saying you're doing this is because there's so much into give us more power. Let the government have more power, more power, more power. It seems these are the last people who ought to have more power. Exactly. I mean, there's really two reasons why I focus on progressives in the book. The first one uh, is is the, the sort of Trump fixation. And what do I mean by that? The, the coverage of Trump has been so massive by the media it's like a total eclipse of the sun. It blocks out any mention, any investigation, any looking at any other political figures. Now, any political leader, Donald Trump, any political leader needs to have scrutiny. Um, but the problem is that a lot of the people who are either aspiring for his job or who want more government power in general uh, have not been investigated. So people will really be shocked by the things in this book. The second reason, though, uh, Janet, is because, as you said, progressives are unique. Unlike conservatives, moderates, classical liberals, uh, progressives are saying the size of government is way too small. We need a lot more power. And my question is, what have they done with the power they already have? Yes. 
Right. That's the real question. So when we're talking about Joe Biden, it's interesting because I understand now the Treasury Department has complied with these Republican senators who had requested Hunter Biden's classified financial records. So I guess that is going forward. But a lot of people are now saying, okay, here was Trump who was put through the ringer over his Ukrainian phone call where there was no quid pro quo. What will happen with the Biden family? Do you have any sense that something will come down on Joe Biden? He will finally be held accountable uh, and Hunter Biden will be held accountable? That's a great question, Janet. We, we know that the Senate, um, Senator Lindsey Graham, has said he wants to hold hearings on this. And that's what I've called for. Look, I don't know whether any of this conduct was criminal. I know it certainly is corrupt. Yeah. But there are a lot of corrupt things in Washington that are legal, uh, which is one of the things that's so frustrating for a lot of people. But my question is, why shouldn't they simply be asked under oath what were they being paid for? How much were they being paid? What about all the other deals? I mean, Hunter Biden was running basically a veritable United Nations of corruption. Deals with the Chinese government, with the Romanians, with the Russians, with the Kazakhs. These are serious questions that need to be asked. And if we're, if we're going to require elected officials to disclose that they have $1,000 of stock in GE, we ought to require their family members to disclose if they've got you know, sometimes billion-dollar deals with foreign governments. Absolutely. It's crazy that there's that kind of loophole. Why is there such a loophole for politicians? That seems like a long overdue reining in that needs to take place. It, it does, Janet. And of course, it's, it's the, the, the challenge that always exists on these issues. It's because the politicians get to write their own rules. Right. You know, so imagine that. I mean, if you're in, in a position where you get to choose to write the rules as an employee, or as a company executive, you say, I get to write my own rules and nobody can overrule them. You know, what are you going to do? I mean, honest people will, will try to do the right thing, but a lot of people, when they're in Washington, D.C., feel they're entitled to it. So that's the problem. A lot of these loopholes exist. They know they exist. People like Bernie Sanders and others exploit them on a regular basis. And that's the reason that they grow so wealthy while they're in office. Yes, that's the real question. People, how did you make so much money on your salary? Now we know why. Well, when you say that five members of Biden's family were really able to cash in, I know you talk about his brother, Frank, for example, but how did his family benefit financially when he was in the Senate in particular? Uh, There's all kinds of examples uh, when he was vice president and when he was in the Senate as well. I mean, uh, he has a daughter named Ashley. A lot of people don't know about Ashley, but... Uh, Think about this. In June of 2011, the vice president, Joe Biden, brings two executives from a just-formed company called Startup Health. He brings them into the Oval Office to meet with Barack Obama. They have their picture taken. They put it up on the website. The next day, this new company is featured at this major federal government uh, uh, conference on health care (laughs) data. And over the next five years as vice president, he goes and briefs uh, the investors and partners to this healthcare investment firm, Startup Health, privately until he's out of the vice presidency. <laughs> well, one of the three principal founders of this company happens to be married to his daughter, Ashley. Oh, man. Yeah, I mean, that, that is completely and totally inappropriate. It's self-dealing. If Donald Trump did it, people would be outraged. I'd be outraged. But Joe Biden has done it, and no one is called into account. Yeah. That's just one example of the five family members and how they have benefited from Joe Biden using his office, his public office, 
for the private benefit of his family. Yeah, that's sickening. What about Bernie Sanders? You mentioned Bernie has established this pattern of benefiting himself and his allies. Everybody remembers, for example, his wife and the Burlington College scandal. What is the deal with Bernie? How corrupt is Bernie Sanders? Bernie was the biggest surprise to me because I figured that, okay, you know, he's a socialist. Um, I don't agree with his policy positions, but he's a true believer. And he may be a true believer, but he's also benefited enormously from his political career. And he's figured out, Janet, one of the dirty little secrets in Washington, which is when you're running campaigns, the way you can funnel money to somebody and nobody knows about it is by making them your media buyer. So, Janet, if you run for the Senate, for example, and you hired me to buy a million dollars in television and radio ads, it would show that a million dollars in radio and television ads were were bought. What it would not show is the industry standard 15% commission that would go to me. Uh Now, all the campaigns do this. What's different about Bernie's case is Bernie did what? He hired his wife to be his media buyer, even though she had no background in media buying. So he's funneled all this money to his wife and to his family through his campaign. And there's a huge mystery because when he ran for president in 2016, he funneled $83 million in media buys. That's about a $12 million commission through this company that, that doesn't have a website that's registered at this residential home. And nobody quite knows who got the commission. Um, we know that the company, it's called Old Town Media, is owned by two of Jane Sanders' friends. And we know that Jane Sanders was asked about this by a progressive reporter in 2016, and she just hung up the phone. Hmm. But nobody knows where that $12 million went, and it would be very curious to know. Well, that that is very sleazy, exactly, when you have that amount of money. And, and as you're going around talking about corrupt one percenters, it, it just doesn't pass the straight face test on some level. You go, wait a minute, Bernie. You, you, you say you're a socialist, but you seem to enjoy your dollars quite a bit. Well, we're going to come back. Peter Schweitzer with us. Profiles in Corruption is his book. We'll return right after this on Janet Meffer Today. Hi, this is Kirk Cameron, and I am honored to be partnering with the Ministry of Preborn to help moms choose life. Actor Kirk Cameron supports Preborn. My four oldest children were adopted. That is because of caring and compassionate people who help those young mothers choose life. My wife is an adopted child, and her birth mother chose life for her. If it weren't for those caring individuals that help those young moms value the sacredness of life, I wouldn't have my wife, I wouldn't have my four adopted children, and the two natural-born children that we have wouldn't exist either. My whole family is here because of people that are involved with ministries like Preborn. Preborn funds pregnancy centers across the nation so they can offer free ultrasounds to women in crisis pregnancies. Ultrasound is a game changer because when abortion-minded women actually see their babies in their wombs for themselves, 80% of the time, they choose life. Would you please join us at Janet Mefford today to support the ministry of Preborn? For $140, you can provide five free ultrasounds to women in crisis pregnancies. A gift of $22 will provide one ultrasound, and every gift helps. To donate, please call now, 
402 baby. That's 855 402 2229. Or there's a banner to click at janetmefford.com. All gifts are tax deductible, and 100% of your gift goes directly towards saving babies. You can get involved and you can help save a life for a gift of $140. Five free ultrasounds will be offered to women in crisis pregnancies. Please call now with your gift, 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-BABY. 855-402-2229. Or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. Welcome back. Peter Schweitzer is joining me, the best-selling author of Clinton Cash. He's out with a great new book. It's called Profiles in Corruption, Abuse of Power by America's Progressive Elite. And this is just astounding when you consider the total hypocrisy, Peter. I mean, these are people who are constantly talking about caring about the little guy. And I stand, you know, especially Joe Biden. Joe Biden has made a career out of identifying with the little guy as he's playing all kinds of games uh, enriching himself and enriching his family Uh, and Bernie Sanders as well. You know, when we go back to the Burlington College scandal, you know, it seems like it kind of came up. There was an inquiry of some sort. I know there was a complaint filed by a Trump campaign official. Whatever came of that, you don't hear much about it anymore. No, you don't. And what's overlooked when I go through in the book is, you know, Jane becomes president of Burlington College. She takes out these loans because she's trying to grow the college. She's acquiring these buildings. And, and it looks like she falsified or misrepresented some information on those loans. But the question becomes, why did Burlington College get into financial trouble? And there were lots of reasons. But here's what nobody picked up on that we expose in the book. While Jane was president of Burlington College, uh, she funneled more than half a million dollars of college money to a business run by her daughter. It was a unaccredited woodworking school, and supposedly this woodworking school was going to help the college grow. But the, the board of trustees of the college um, didn't really uh, ever you know, arbitrate or decide to fund the daughter's woodworking school. Uh, there was no open bidding for other woodworking schools. It was simply a transfer of money from Jane Sanders to her daughter's business. And this fits the pattern. Bernie Sanders did it when he was mayor in Burlington. We talk about that. He did it when he was in Congress. Jane did it when she was president of Burlington College. And for years, Bernie Sanders, uh, you know, for 36 years, we actually counted it out, has railed against, uh, you know, American politics being dominated by billionaires and millionaires. Well, three years ago, Janet, he dropped the millionaires part because he has now won. (laughs) <laughs> and he has won because of his government service. And there's all kinds of aspects to how he's operated that just shows a huge inconsistency between what he professes to be in charge of and what he uh, what he believe in and what he's actually doing. That's amazing. That's crazy. What about Elizabeth Warren? She's another one you tackle. Um, she has all kinds of problems, the whole Pocahontas thing and lying about being a Native American and all that stuff that came out. But how corrupt is she when you looked into yeah. her and, and her background? Yeah, I mean, there's a kind of a three-layer cake for uh, Elizabeth Warren. Uh, she herself... Um, played one of the oldest and dirtiest games in Washington, D.C. She was hired, a lot of people don't know this, she was hired by Congress in 1994 to rewrite part of bankruptcy laws, which she did. She then went to corporations and said, hey, you who look at me over here, I rewrote these rules 
um, you can hire me and I will help you get around the laws that the taxpayers take me to write. <laughs> and that's one of the reasons she's worth, you know, around $12 million today. It's not because she was being paid as a Harvard faculty member to live this lifestyle. It's because she was being paid by Dow Chemical and these other corporations to navigate a law that we paid her as taxpayers to write. Wow. It's, it's one of the dirtiest games in Washington. We talk in the book about the business uh, interests of her daughter, uh, which really blur the line between the public service of Elizabeth Warren and the actual um, uh, actions uh, that, that uh, her daughter has taken. And then you have this strange situation with her son-in-law, uh, her son-in-law, Sushil Tiagi, who's married to her daughter, Amelia, who has all kinds of uh, interesting international uh, business dealings that was financed by the government of Iran. <laughs> so there's all kinds of troubling issues surrounding Elizabeth Warren. Again, none of this stuff has been reported, and it's all based on paper trail documents. Uh, there's more than 1,100 footnotes in this book. Good grief. I, I'm so glad you're doing this work. This is such important information for everybody to have. And you, I know you also mentioned that she's lied about her legal advocacy for families and workers. What does her legal consulting record actually show about that? Yeah, well, it's interesting. If you look at the actual uh, uh, legal cases she's involved in, you look at the attorneys that went against her, she tries to portray it as, I was being, so for example, in the case of Dow Chemical, I was being paid by Dow Chemical to look out for the interests of women who were suing Dow Chemical because of faulty breast implants. Well, any lawyer you talk to would laugh at that because you are not being paid by your client to look out for the interests of somebody else. You're being paid by your client to look out for their interests. Right. And the lawyers that work in these cases say exactly the same thing. She was there doing the bidding for these corporations, um, and there's no disputing that, despite what Elizabeth Warren how she wants to try to spin it or what she likes to claim. Oh, man. I, the thing that really frustrates me is you have an entire media that could be digging this stuff out and could be reporting it, and they won't do any of it. I mean, even from the standpoint yeah. of this is a really good story, you might want to look into it. Why doesn't anybody ever put, pick up on this stuff? You don't have to protect every single Democrat, do you, if you're in the mainstream media? You know, it's interesting, Janet. There are a couple of reporters that have tried to tackle it or have tackled it a little bit. Um, you know, we have to give them credit. But you're right. I mean, there's not a high-level attention to this. And this is the other part of this, Janet, that's so frustrating, is in my book, there are no anonymous sources. Everything is footnoted. So it's based on, you know, court documents. It's based on financial records. It's based on foreign corporation records. It's all documented paper trail. In contrast to that... The media will run all of these sometimes really crazy stories about Donald Trump based on some anonymous source right. that, they have no, that they have no backup for. So it's really, unfortunately, an indictment of journalism. I believe every political figure, whether it's Donald Trump or Elizabeth Warren, uh, needs scrutiny. But the scrutiny is only on one side. A lot of the so-called scrutiny of Trump has been reckless uh, using anonymous sources. And here you have actual paper trail documentation that at least is information people ought to know about, and the media does not seem to want to go near it. Yeah, and, and, and is it the case that you really want corrupt people leading you, even if they happen to have the positions that you approve of? You want people who are corrupt and enriching themselves and their families? That's the standard yeah. that you have for the people who are in office? No, it's a great, it's a great point, Janet. And I say this to people. I, I know people that are liberal, that are conservative, that are moderate. Look, there are good and honest people on both sides. I might not agree with somebody's political positions, but there are people in office 
on on the liberal democratic side who are honest and earnest. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's not the case that there aren't other options. It's just that for some reason, uh, these leaders, I think in the case of uh, Joe Biden, there's this sense that, that you know, he's got this, this history and he's got this gravitas and they don't want to disrupt that. But that's precisely what we should be doing is we should be vetting people and we should be allowing uh, citizens to know who their leaders are, whether they're running for president or whether they're just powerful senators or the mayor of Los Angeles. I've got a chapter on him in the book. Yeah. Um, people need to know how they're operating, how they're using power to benefit themselves and their families. Well, right. And I know one of the people that's been in the news recently has been Pete Buttigieg. I know this is not something you've covered in the book, but I'm curious for your opinion on how this Iowa caucus travesty has come down, because you have all the controversy involving this shadow app and the funding and the Clinton operatives behind it. I mean, the the corruption doesn't just stop, as we all understand, with people enriching themselves. Corruption also can come out in just the plain old process of doing politics. What, What is your reaction to what's been going on with the Iowa caucuses? Yeah, it's, it's remarkable. I just I don't believe that you have this level of incompetence in the Iowa Democratic Party. I just don't. I mean, I understand, okay, maybe they were sloppy, they made some mistakes, but it's very hard to convince me that it takes this long um, and, and you have to make this many corrections and adjustments to a Democratic primary process and there's not something to foul. I think that there is an effort uh, within uh, the Democratic Party hierarchy to basically prevent Bernie Sanders from being the nominee. Yeah. I think that's for a variety of reasons, and I think you're seeing it played out. Um, and, and I agree with you. I mean, there's lots of examples in the book. Kamala Harris is no longer running for president. But when you see the manner in which she covered up and failed to handle uh, child abuse, um, a priestly scandals in San Francisco while she was the prosecutor there, why she did that, who's benefited, you know, who benefited from that, and how those individuals helped her get elected, you realize exactly what you're saying. It's not just about getting rich. It's about raw power, expanding your power, and the ambitious climb to the top. Oh, for sure. You know, some of these methods that you talk about in the book, things like sweetheart deals and bending the law and covering things up, are any of these tactics tending to be used more than others when it comes to the progressive elite? Yeah, I think the what I call offshoring corruption is very common. So, you know, Janet, if you were a senator and, and, and a corrupt one, which I know you wouldn't be, but if you were, <laughs> and I was going to pay you off, if I gave you a shoebox with $50,000 cash for a favor, um, you know, we'd get caught. We're both going to jail. Right. But if I, you know, if I hired, you know, one of your kids, or if I hired your spouse, or if I hired your brother and sister and gave them a no-show job, you know, for example, like Hunter Biden got with Ukrainians right. to the tune of $3 million, that's very hard to trace. Now, in the eyes of the law, it's still corruption. If you're doing that in, in exchange for a favor, it's still bribery. But it's very, very hard. to. So this has become the vehicle, the common vehicle, uh, where corrupt politicians use. So they disclose, and Joe Biden can say, oh, I don't have that much money. I'm not worth that much. Look at my financial disclosure. <laughs> While his brother and sister and his daughter and his daughter and his sons you know, are cashing in big, big time and not having to disclose any of it. Right. Well, it makes you wonder if you have a kid who's a very bright guy, why can't he get on a Ukrainian energy company board? I mean, <laughs> come on. Why Isn't it a level playing field at the end of the day? Yeah. And listen, in the Biden's case, I mean, it's ridiculous. Look, we all know if you're in Washington and your last name is Biden or Bush, you're just going to have certain advantages. But 
Ukraine case is so clear-cut. I mean, in February of 2014, Putin goes into Crimea. That sets off the whole Ukrainian crisis. In March, the next month, Joe Biden is appointed point person for all USA dollars going to Ukraine. And within two weeks, within two weeks, lo and behold, Ukrainians suddenly decide they're going to hire his son. Yeah, yeah. They're going to give him three million. I mean, it's absurd. Everybody knows what's going on. I know, it it's stinks. It's not like, oh, coincidence, we just found this bright guy. Uh, who happens to be related to the vice president. I know. It's so true. Peter Schweitzer, the book is Profiles in Corruption. So good to talk to you, Peter. Thanks a lot. And we'll be right back. This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Preborn. For $140, you can provide ultrasounds to five women in crisis pregnancies. Call now, 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229 or JanetMefford.com. This is Janet Mefford Today. And now, here's your host, Janet Mefford. We are back on Janet Meffer today. He has been called one of the greatest statesmen England ever had. Thomas Cromwell is well known for his position close to King Henry VIII and his hand in the Protestant Reformation. But how did this obscure commoner become the architect of England's split with Rome? Why was he executed? And was he ultimately a villain or a hero? We're going to talk about it today with Dermot McCullough, who is professor of the history of the church at Oxford University. His award-winning books include Thomas Cranmer, A Life and the Reformation of history. He's a historian and Anglican deacon knighted in 2012, and he has presented many highly celebrated documentaries for television and radio. His latest book is called Thomas Cromwell, A Revolutionary Life. And Professor McCullough, wonderful to have you with us. Thank you. I'm delighted to be with you. What I know that you have written quite a few books on the Tudor era of English history, and I'm curious to ask what it is about that era, and maybe Cromwell in particular, that draws your interest. Well, it's been actually with me, Janet, for a very long time, since I was a boy. And I grew up in a remote part of eastern England, where my father was the parish priest, and he had two beautiful medieval churches. Hmm. And in one of them were the tombs, the monuments of a Tudor gentry family. Uh, and I was fascinated by these, even when I was a little lad. And... Uh, the thing, the thing which interested me was that uh, after the Protestant Reformation in England, this family, this gentry family, had remained Roman Catholic, yet they continued burying their uh, family members in the parish church, which they loved and did so for another 200 years. And I just thought that was fascinating and odd. <laughs> so from an early age, I, uh, the Tudor period was one which particularly interested me. And then I realized just how crucial it was in uh, the development of England and then Britain. And in fact, uh, the United States, which emerged from the um, uh, English colonies in the North America. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, you delved into Cromwell's earlier years, didn't you? And I know there hasn't been a lot known about his childhood in his early years. But what did you discover about his childhood and his growing up? And he was an obscure commoner. But what do we know about him? Well, we know uh, a, a little as you say, he was obscure, and therefore documentation is sparse. He grew up in uh, a small village called Putney, which is on the River Thames, and uh, it's upstream from London. 
and uh, royal barges and the uh, uh, the barges of the nobility would sail past Putney. They might stop. It was a bit like a, a service station on a freeway. Mm. Uh, you'd you'd halt there for a tankard of ale or something like that. So young Thomas would grow up, and his father was a brewer. So he may have served um, uh, tankard of ale to great men when he was a boy in mm. the 1480s, 1490s. Uh, what we got, uh, what I discovered about him was uh, that virtually everything we thought we knew about this boy was a Victorian lie. Hmm. It was made up by 19th century local historian who, who just didn't seem to do it to big himself up. Hmm. And so he laid down false trails of what looked like facts, and they weren't facts at all. Uh, and so when I was able to push those out of the way, something rather more interesting emerged, which was uh, the, the voices from the, the 16th century, which had seemed a bit odd, saying that Thomas Cromwell's father was from Ireland and wasn't English at all. Huh. Uh, and uh, that I think we need to investigate more. But since virtually everything we knew was wrong, and these are Tudor voices, I think we need to take care of them and uh, take an interest in them. Uh, and it's not just Thomas Cromwell who uh, is involved in that, but his sister had descendants, and one of those descendants was a man called Oliver Cromwell. Mm -hmm. And Oliver's name in Ireland is, is absolutely dark and dire, and he's a symbol of English colonialism and all the bad things that the English have done to Ireland. Uh, and yet it now turns out because of this that Oliver Cromwell had Irish descent too. I thought that was fascinating. It is. And it's, it's, it's a nice example of the way that real history can upset myths. Right. Uh, <laughs> now an Irishman did all those dreadful things to Ireland. Well, oh there we are. Oh, my. Well, yes, some people will have a, a, a big awakening on some of these issues that you've uncovered here and some of these myths, which I want to get into. How was it that Thomas Cromwell ended, ended up in governmental life? I know that he had a mentor, Cardinal Wolsey, and then eventually became important to King Henry VIII. But what was the trail that brought him into a, you know, positions of prominence? Uh, you mentioned the, the real crucial man, Cardinal Thomas Wolsey, who was the great previous minister, the man before Thomas Cromwell. He was everything. He he ran the church. He he ran the government of England, and uh, he took on Thomas Cromwell as uh, a, a servant in a very particular way, and in a, in a what you might call a minor role, but also a very important role, which was organising Cardinal Wolsey's tomb. That was very important in the 16th century. Uh, and uh, around the tomb would be colleges of priests to pray for the cardinal's soul. And Thomas Cromwell was in charge of all that. So he was in charge of finding the money to uh, found the colleges, and the cardinal had decided to dissolve monasteries, uh, something that people remember about Thomas Cromwell, but it was associated with dissolving monasteries for Henry VIII. Right. Well, he dissolved them for Cardinal Wolsey. But it was the tomb in the middle of it which explains really everything. Uh, and uh, when I realized that, I, I was extremely pleased because it links back to his early life. He left the village of Putney. It was boring and obscure. And he went across Europe uh, as a teenager and went to one of Europe's greatest cities, Florence, in Italy. And there he was at the center of European culture, not on the edge, which England was on the edge. Hmm. Uh, and he came back from that experience in his 20s to England, 
really the best Italian in all Tudor England. He spoke fluent Italian, but French and German and Spanish and Latin, but Italian's a thing. Because the Cardinal's tomb was being built by Italians. That's why the Cardinal wanted this particular obscure commercial man, this obscure lawyer. It was it speaking Italian to Italians. And then uh, they would go on creating this, this incredible tomb. Wow. And that's the thing, actually, as well, which got him into Henry VIII's service. Because when Henry VIII threw away his old servant, Cardinal Wolsey, and Wolsey fell, the, car, uh, the Cardinal's tomb was still there, not finished, in workshops in London, Westminster. And Henry VIII pinched it <laughs> for his own tomb. He took all the sort of cardinal-related things off and, and decided it would be his tomb and the Italian craftsman would go on working. So who better than Thomas Cromwell, the cardinal's old uh, servant, to look after that project, look after transferring all the cardinal's property to the king. So that's, how, that's the story of how this very obscure man, in his 40s, became the king's chief minister. Yeah, wow, that's that's fascinating how that actually occurred. I had not heard that before, and that really is interesting. So here he was, his first position then, when he came into the employ of King Henry VIII, where did he start out in relation to the king? He started in a very, what you might call, shapeless position. He was administering the cardinal's property, uh, and it was being transferred to the king, a uh, huge palace, for instance, in Westminster, which uh, had been called York Place, now is called Whitehall. Hmm. And it's still the centre of English government, but it was then a glorious palace. And uh, his uh, Cromwell's job was to make it as, as glorious and wonderful for Henry VIII as it had been for the Cardinal. So you might call him, though he wasn't given this title, Secretary for Wolsey-Related Affairs for the <laughs> King. But very quickly, the, the King saw just how competent he was. So he started quietly involving him in all sorts of other things. Yes. So he was in and he ended up having quite a role and quite an important role under the reign of King Henry VIII. And of course, one of the things we want to get into when we come back from this break is the fact that King Henry VIII and Anne Boleyn played a part in all of this era of history and the creation of the Church of England and breaking from Rome. There's so much there. We're going to talk about how Thomas Cromwell fits into that. It's the name of the book, A Revolutionary Life by Professor Dermot McCullough. We're going to come back on Janet Meffer today. When I heard her heartbeat, I decided to keep her. And now my daughter's about to be three. I don't know where my life would be without her. The Ministry of Preborn invites you to share your pro-life message through sharing heartbeats. You see, when a young woman considering abortion sees her baby on ultrasound and hears the heartbeat, eight out of ten times, she'll choose life for her preborn baby. 
and that ultrasound changed everything for me. It really did. That made it all worthwhile to know that I was going to have a little blessing. And when she got here, it was just, oh my gosh. Preborn is the largest provider of free ultrasounds in the country. Would you join with Preborn and Janet Meffer today? For $140, you can sponsor five ultrasounds and help save five babies' lives. All gifts are tax deductible, and 100% of your donation goes towards saving babies' lives. Call now, 855-402-2229, 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-BABY, or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. The healthcare open enrollment period has ended. Did you miss it? Don't go a whole year without having a healthcare program. Sign up with Liberty HealthShare. As a Christian healthcare sharing ministry, Liberty HealthShare is not insurance, so you can still sign up. In fact, you can sign up any time of year, and there are no contracts. Starting as low as $199 a month, Liberty HealthShare has memberships for singles, couples, and families, so you can choose the ideal program for your situation. Plus, Liberty HealthShare has no network, so you're free to pick your own doctors, hospitals, and providers. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit ministry, so your money goes toward helping other members with their eligible medical expenses. And in your time of need, other members are there for you, too. You can feel good knowing you're part of a community of like-minded individuals who understand the importance of people coming together to bear one another's burdens. Go to libertyhealthshare.org JMT for more information. libertyhealthshare.org JMT. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. We are back on Janet Mefford today. So good to have you with us and great to have with us Dermot McCullough, professor of the history of the church at Oxford University. He is an award-winning author and historian, and his book is called Thomas Cromwell, A Revolutionary Life. We're talking about the role of this very important English statesman back during the Tudor period. Now, Henry VIII, as everybody will know, professor, wanted to have his marriage annulled to Catherine of Aragon, wanted to marry Anne Boleyn, and Cromwell, you know, played a part in all of this. And how did his religious life impact his role under Henry VIII as all of that un- unwound and took place? It was hugely important because all Henry wanted was to get married to Anne Boleyn, which would involve somehow persuading the world and the, and the church that he wasn't married to Catherine of Aragon. And I think it was Henry who had the outrageous, audacious idea of uh, when the Pope denied him this possibility of saying, well, I'm going to take the church over and I can appoint an archbishop who will do this for me and I'll be supreme head of the church. I think we have to say that Henry VIII did that. But Thomas Cromwell showed him how to do it. Uh, The king might have tried because he was so conceited, so arrogant. He might have just tried proclaiming this Hmm. and it would have been a disaster. I don't think the country would have really stood uh, this break after a thousand years of connection to Rome. But Thomas Cromwell uh, said, well, the way you do it is using Parliament, the assembly of the realm with the, the nobility, the gentry, the abbots, the bishops. Make them all assent to this, and I will do that. Because the, the, the most remarkable thing about Thomas Cromwell, the most distinctive thing, was that he adored Parliament. He, he had been a member of Parliament in the 1520s, even before um, he joined Wolsey's service. And he was fascinated by it, and he knew how to handle it. And so the story of the early 1530s is Thomas Cromwell putting forward patiently all the things, all the machinery, to get Parliament to consent, 
bit by bit to this break with Rome and then the acceptance of the marriage to Anne Bullen. That's his achievement. And it had a long, long-term effect because Parliament had never done anything that important before. It had voted taxes for the king. It had given the king advice. It had objected to things. It had consented to the king's policies. But now it was being asked to do this absolutely momentous thing. That's why I've called this a, a revolutionary life. Yes. Because he made Parliament do something revolutionary. And it saved Parliament. It made the English Parliament special. For every, every part of Europe had a Parliament at the time. They're not uncommon in medieval Europe. They're the norm. But they mostly withered away in the 16th century. Not the English Parliament. It expanded after this. It became central. And you might say that the, the democracy of the United States owes its shape to the experience of the English Parliament behind it. That's the really interesting part about it. But one of the myths that you bust in the book is the notion that Cromwell was an ally of Anne Boleyn in their efforts to promote the Reformation. What's the real story on that? That's the great paradox. Um, traditionally, they've been seen as allies because they were both Protestants pushing forward to a Protestant Reformation. But what people hadn't noticed uh, was the closeness of Cromwell to his former employer, Cardinal Wolsey. He adored Wolsey. Hmm. He even took his heraldry, his coat of arms, and turned a version of it into his coat of arms and registered it with the heralds two years after the Cardinal's death, when the Cardinal was in disgrace, his memory was black, when Anne Boleyn was the coming person. And to do that, you're really... Uh, actually putting a gesture of defiance to Anne. In other words, they hated each other. Hmm. Anne Boleyn had destroyed the cardinal, uh, made sure that his uh, time of greatness was over, and Cromwell had adored the cardinal. So there is no uh, evidence at all, as I worked with the huge quantities of manuscripts, of any um, friendship, between Anne and Thomas at all, Thomas Cromwell and Anne Boleyn, and every evidence that he was responsible for destroying her in 1536 uh, when she was arrested for adultery and incest and then executed. And I think it, it's, there's no doubt that he was responsible for orchestrating that, using wow. the king's feelings and taking that and ultimately destroying her. The yeah. revenge for the Cardinal. That would certainly discount him as an ally, for sure, if he was involved <laughs> in that. Yeah. Yes, I mean, to be a, an a, understatement there. But of course, Thomas Cromwell met, met his own end with execution, and one wonders, how was it that he went from being such a trusted advisor to the king to being executed? What was the path to execution for him? Well, your problem as a minister for Henry VIII is that you've, you've got to succeed all the time. You've got to deliver the goods. Um, his, his old master, the cardinal, had failed to deliver the goods on um, getting the annulment of the marriage of Catherine of Aragon. And Cromwell was brought down in rather the same way because it was all about marriage number four of uh, Henry VIII's six wives. And this was to Anne of Cleves, a foreign princess, suited Cromwell very well to have a foreign princess. She wouldn't be the daughter of an English nobleman. And diplomatically, she represented a reaching out to the Protestant Reformation. So he fixed it up. She arrived, and the king loathed the sight of her. 
And this is really mysterious. We just um, can't understand Henry VIII's taste in women. But for whatever <laughs> reason, he hated her. Oh, boy. And he couldn't get out of the marriage. Everything was fixed. So he had to marry this woman he hated. It must be the gloomiest wedding of the 16th century, followed by the gloomiest wedding night. And yet, the only way he could really rid himself of Anne of Cleves was to say he could not perform with her. That would annul the marriage. How humiliating that was. And mm. that's really what did for Thomas Cromwell, because he blamed Thomas Cromwell. Rightly so. It was Cromwell's idea. Goodness. Wow. That's incredible. Well, so now on the myth of his brutality and, and helping Henry VIII become a tyrant and that sort of thing, what is the truth about Thomas Cromwell's role? Was he more of a villain or more of a hero as you've studied all this research? Well, the king never became a, ty a tyrant. He might wanted to, but Tudor England wasn't like that. It had checks and balances, a bit like the United States now. And uh, Thomas Cromwell was part of those checks and balances. He was a king's servant, and he did uh, find himself drawn into the king's brutality. He was responsible for prosecuting good men like Thomas More and making sure that they were executed. He, he tried to soften the king's brutality on occasions. He could bring the king down from murderous rages. But you have to say in the end that he has to bear some of the blame for some of Henry VIII's worst actions. Henry VIII was the sort of ruler who could make good people do bad things. Mm -hmm. And I would say, in the end, Thomas Cromwell was a good person who did some very bad things. Wow. Would you have characterized him as a great man? Yes, I would. The effects of what he did were incredibly long-lasting. If anyone steered England into the Protestant Reformation, it was him. You then have to judge whether uh, that counts as greatness. I would say it does. Others would disagree. But, you know, this man is a man you li like or loathe. And there's very little middle ground there. Uh, I've tried to present a portrait of the whole man. And so I hope people can judge for themselves on that evidence. But I still admire him. I think he had chutzpah. Hmm. And uh, I like people with chutzpah. Yes, <laughs> right. But uh, certainly not a perfect man. What would you characterize as his greatest contribution to English history in the final analysis? It's a religious one. It's pushing England in a Protestant direction when his king didn't want him to. And that's one of the reasons he fell apart from Anne of Cleves. And the directions he set were the directions on which England set out over the next centuries. Right, which also, as you mentioned before, had a tremendous influence on the United States in the long run. Yeah, it was the Protestantism which he helped to create, which pushed people across the Atlantic. Ironically, against the Church of England, he'd helped to found, but it's the same Protestantism. Yes, despite the fa the Irish father, <laughs> he, had, <laughs> he had all of this influence on England and, and beyond, way beyond, a very significant person in not just British history, but in the history of the world. And it's just such a beautiful book, Thomas Cromwell, A Revolutionary Life, and Professor Dermot McCullough, who's been joining us, is professor of the history of the church at Oxford University and author of this really wonderful book. So good to have you with us, Professor McCullough. Really an honor to talk to you. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for being here. We'll see you next time on Janet Meffer Today. Thank you so much for listening.